Our scripture lesson this morning, friends, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And so I want to invite you to turn to that in your Bible, if you would like to. It's found on page 735. Um, Also, you're welcome to just close your eyes to take whatever position feels comfortable to you and to hear the word of God as it is read today. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed to the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the lawyer, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. One of my absolute favorite memories from the last church community that I served in, which is a rural community down in Havelock, North Carolina. If you don't know where that is, there's not a lot there, but if you've ever been to Atlantic Beach, you drove through it because you have to in order to get there. One of my favorite memories from that community was in the middle of a church meeting. Um, I will admit this might be the only church meeting I actually recollect because nobody really has fun at those. Um, But we were in the middle of a church meeting And I don't remember what it was for. I don't remember what we were talking about, to be honest. But I do remember sitting around this table with people. And they were just, like, really in a mood. Do you ever have those days when you're at work and everybody's having, like, a really bad day? Lately, I feel like it's every day of the week and every person in the world. But we were sitting around the table and everyone was just having one of those days and they were all just talking negatively about literally anything. About other people and life and situations, anything that came up, all it was was negative comments about it. And that might be one of my biggest pet peeves besides people telling me what to do. (laughs) 
I just really don't enjoy those types of conversations. I don't like to sit around and just listen to people complain about how everything is awful. Sometimes we all need those moments, I will own that. Sometimes I have those moments where I just wanna vent. And most of the time, once I've had it, I really wanna move on. But when we just stick in those moments of life being awful and constant complaining, I get really annoyed. And what I do when I'm really annoyed in those moments is I just become relentlessly positive. It is incredibly obnoxious to the other people around me. But I just find those moments really unhelpful, especially if you're in a church meeting. We don't know other people's lives or circumstances, life situations are really hard and we don't make them better when we just sit around talking about how bad it is with no end in sight. We don't know a lot of things, and most days I don't feel like I know anything, but I do like to pretend that there's a good coming. So as I sat around this table listening to complaint after complaint, I just offered counterpoints to all of them. Maybe that person who you're talking about horribly isn't intentionally ignoring your calls out of malice. Maybe they're just doing what's best for their mental health. It's a real thing. <laughs> Maybe that person isn't gossiping about you and what was communicated to you is actually a misunderstanding. Maybe instead of continuing to gossip about how they're gossiping about you, we could just sit down and talk about it. Often I offer mediation and that's usually when the gossip stops. <laughs> Maybe what this person thinks is important is valid, even if you don't believe it's valid. Maybe this person in the church who is like, stuck on finances and you're stuck on this other thing and you just want to argue about it, maybe you both are trying to do the same good. You're just doing it in different ways. It goes on and on and on. And eventually we get to the point in the conversation where people have realized I'm just not going to participate in this like very strange hate fest that's happening. And finally, a woman in the group looked at me and really loudly in front of everyone exclaimed in a very frustrated manner that I was incredibly obnoxiously optimistic <laughs> and that she literally couldn't stand it. <laughs> and truthfully, it is the most flattering insult I've ever had in my life. <laughs> she said that and I was like, thank you. <laughs> and I think it made it a lot worse. <laughs> It's truth of who I am as a person, and that is that I'm someone who just tends to be relentlessly positive, um, aggressively so. I really hate when people tell me that I can't do things. It's probably the only time I genuinely get angry is when someone has told me I can't do something, and I'm like, I'm gonna do it, and you're gonna like it. It's gonna be great. <laughs> I hate when people are overly critical and when they're nihilistic. I hate when we just sit in that deep mud with no good insight. I just don't do that well. I don't like when the focus of a room or a conversation is impending doom or like the irredeemable quality of humanity or the mass amount of evil that's circulating around us right now or the coldness of all people. That just like really isn't my jam. I don't like those things. And you could probably attribute it to the fact that I'm an Enneagram too. If you know what that means, you know, and if you don't, that's okay. <laughs> Go home and Google it later. 
But I think truthfully, a lot of why I am that way has to do with being raised in the church. It has to do with being raised in the faith tradition. I am like a fifth generation Methodist. I went to Sunday school and church and potlucks and vacation Bible school my entire life. I don't look like somebody who was raised as a traditional church person, and I was, and it's the most fun paradox to exist in. <laughs> I was raised by a line of women who were just relentlessly positive because when they didn't have much, they had that. I was raised by people who were relentlessly hopeful, and all of that hope always rested in Jesus. There's something really powerful about those things. I think the biggest annoyance I have is when I am that way, people just assume I'm naive, or I'm dumb, or a whole host of other things, and the truth is, I think there's power in it. Today's scripture lesson is one of the accounts of what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable I've preached several times before, and when I read it this week, I was a little upset that it rolled around again because I think I was a lot better the last time I preached it. <laughs> and trying to outdo yourself is literally the worst. <laughs> it's a popular parable that's gone outside the walls of the church. The idea of a good Samaritan is found in all types of literature. It's found in pop culture. My college had a good Samaritan policy. Um, that's one of the only things I remember from freshman convocation was them telling us they had this policy. And if you were doing something you shouldn't have been, and you came across someone doing something they also shouldn't have been doing, you could call and you wouldn't get in trouble for doing the thing you shouldn't have been if you help out the other person. It's very coded language, but I think you catch my drift. <laughs> North Carolina even has a good Samaritan law. This is a well-known parable. The concept of a good Samaritan is well-known. In fact, if you Google what is a Samaritan, it might actually say a good person. And that's not true. A Samaritan is a whole group of people, but I'm sure they're lovely. With each account of this parable in the Bible, it's a bit different. We see it in multiple Gospels. And today's account is out of Luke. For Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan is prompted by a dialogue between Jesus and a lawyer. A lawyer stands up and says to Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And the scripture tells us he's really testing Jesus out. And in traditional Jesus fashion, Jesus does not answer his question. In fact, he kind of completely ignores it and he turns it around and he asks this guy a question in return, saying, what has been written in the law? How do you read it? And we know that this man who is a lawyer does in fact know the law well because he quotes back to Jesus scriptures from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he responds saying that you are to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. He knows, at least intellectually, what you should do to inherit eternal life. Jesus affirmed his answer, yes, you have gotten it right, correct. Do this and you will live. And then the lawyer has a question of his own, this time seemingly not testing Jesus, but just actually being really curious. He asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds, at least not immediately with a question. Eventually, he just asks another question. Really, this is what Jesus does. 
But he responds with this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, which we can actually more accurately translate as the compassionate Samaritan. The Greek word that's used is a lot closer to compassionate than good. And personally, I just like that more. It sounds nicer. The parable goes that a man is traveling on the road, that he's met by robbers, that he's beaten and left in a ditch. As other, tra- as other people travel by, they don't stop. Instead, they cross to the other side of the road to avoid the man lying in a ditch. A priest crosses to the other side of the road. A Levite crosses to the other side of the road. These people who are supposed to be like really good folks cross to the other side of the road. And you could say what this story tells us is that pastors and clergy and religious people maybe aren't as good as we like to think they are, but that's like a really dark hole to go down. (laughs) I really don't want to tell you that, being that that is me. These righteous people, these men who are supposed to represent God in the world, cross to the other side. And then enters the compassionate Samaritan. Samaritans are not super popular people. They do not generally socialize with other Jewish people, especially Jewish people who are bloody and in a ditch. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people of Galilee and Judea shunned Samaritans, viewing them as a mixed race who practice impure, half-pagan religion. And still, this impure, half-pagan stops. They show kindness to this man in a ditch, taking him to an inn, paying for his care, and feeding him. The interaction concludes with Jesus getting to his next question which is, who loved their neighbor? And the lawyer correctly answers, the one who is compassionate, the Samaritan. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. So what does this have to do with my very strange tangent about relentless optimism? Stephen Gold, a writer who penned an op-ed in the New York Times after 9-11, wrote these words in his piece about 9-11, and it's beautiful, and I wanted to share them with you today. His op-ed said, good and kind people outnumber all others by thousands to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts of evil, not in the high frequency of evil people. Complex systems can only be built step by step, whereas destruction requires but an instant. Thus, in what I like to call the great asymmetry, every spectacular incident of evil will be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, too often unnoted and invisible as the ordinary efforts of a vast majority. We have a duty, a holy responsibility, to record and honor the victorious weight of these innumerable little acts of kindness. When an unprecedented act of evil so threatens to distort our perception of ordinary human behavior. The entire focus of the compassionate Samaritan friends is not the violence or the crime. It's not a story about robbers. It's a story about God and relentless goodness. The focus of this story is not the beating. It's the mercy and the loving kindness. 
In this story, if you count the words, the robbers get about a dozen, and the Samaritan, the goodness, the compassion gets the rest. In the story, the compassionate Samaritan tells truth. Jesus tells the truth of everything that happens. He tells the seriousness of the attack. He tells us robbers left this man half dead in a ditch. He tells the brutality. He tells how the priest and Levite choose to respond with ignorance. How they choose to walk away and cross the street. Jesus tells everything. He sets the stage for us. He doesn't ignore the ugliness of the world. He doesn't ignore the situation. He doesn't turn away from it. He's not naive. He sees all of it and he chooses to move beyond it. And he focuses on the compassion. That's the bulk of his story. He sets the stage and he moves from ugliness to goodness. Something that I have come to believe in life is that it's not wrong to be obnoxiously optimistic or relentlessly kind. In truth, it is just who I am as a person. It's who most of the women in my family are, who they've been conditioned to be when the world has not been kind to them. But more than that, I think it's who we sometimes are called to be as Christians. Jesus models for us someone who knows the truth of the whole story, the truth of horrible brutality, the truth of hardness that lies at the heart of humanity and still chooses kindness every single time, still chooses love, still chooses joy, still chooses to bandage and wash wounds. The choice, friends, is not between ignoring violence and suffering and living in ignorant bliss or knowing the evil of the world and living in a constant state of existential dread. As hard as that is, I feel like there's no way that um, therapists are not just overrun with people living in constant existential dread right now. Truthfully, like, you just have to be. I don't know how most people are making sense of the world right now, especially if they don't have some sort of faith to root them. Evil is at bay. But what the story tells us is it doesn't have the final victory. That we can tell a story differently. That we cannot let it have center stage. That darkness doesn't get to have the whole story. That it doesn't get to fill our minds. That it doesn't get to steal our joy. Looking for love and kindness and seeking other options besides just assuming the worst in the world and people around us and pretending that evil isn't there. As Christians, we get to be people who sit in the suffering, who can name evil forces as they are in the world around us, who can see things like racism and gun violence and the, the oppression of bodies around us and know that those things are horrible. We're people who can look at them, who can confess our own complicity, who can lament, who can protest. And we're people who know that with Christ, with God, that's not the whole story. We're people who can always believe there's goodness to come, that evil will never win. 
that we have resurrection hope. And that is a hope that literally the world tried to put to death and it rose. When it comes to humanity, what I love about God is God knows the whole truth of us. This really used to bother me as a teenager. (laughs) Being raised very Christian, I used to sit in my room and be like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. And I'd have thoughts and be like, please didn't hear that. I don't know if anyone else was raised like a mildly paranoid Christian or if this is just me. Okay, great. I'm glad other people are like, yeah, I feel like we need a support group. (laughs) God knows the whole story of who we are, and God is relentlessly optimistic about it. God always chooses to believe the best in us, always pursues us, always chooses to know that we are worthy, chooses love, chooses kindness, chooses compassion. And so, friends, I, as a person, am going to choose to remain obnoxiously optimistic and to believe that it is, in fact, a compliment to be called so. As someone, I want to be a person who chooses to know that I don't know much, and I still believe that there's good in people. I'm sure a lot of evil has happened this week in our own lives and in the world. In fact, I know it has, and I choose to believe that it's redeemable that there's good, that it's only going to take up a small part of the story and it's only going to set the stage for everything that's to come. The world has been quite loud this week and perhaps you found yourself in a ditch. Maybe you found yourself running to the other side of the street when you saw the people laying in the ditch. Right now it just feels like they're full. There's so much to look at that's bad, you just want to run to the other side of the street. And I think we could be people who really get down on ourselves and shame ourselves and beat ourselves up because we did that, because we ran to the other side of the street, because we acted in a way that looked away. But I don't think we need to. Frankly, shame just won't be productive in these cases. I think the best we can do is move forward. If Stephen Gold's math is right, we need to do 10,000 kind acts in order to start to outdo the bad. And that feels like a lot of kind acts. But the good news is that there's a lot happening already. That kind acts are ever ongoing that you don't necessarily have to find someone bleeding in a ditch and pick them up and throw them on your donkey. You have to find a donkey and then put them on it. (laughs) And take them somewhere and pay for their housing and then come back later to pay for like all of the other things they required for it to count as a kind act. You can do small things and still contribute to the larger 10,000. The good news of this story, friends, is that we are not living in a world of robbers. They exist, but the world is not theirs. This is not their story. What we are existing in is a world that belongs to God, and this is God's story. And it's a story of kindness and generosity and resilient, unwavering love. It's a world of light that scatters darkness. And we're a people who are invited to continue to help to spread that light by choosing otherwise. By choosing to believe that good will come 
and by trying to participate in it when we can. I don't know about you, but for me, that just feels good enough. That feels hopeful enough and sure enough and warm and fuzzy to know that there is always something else coming that is better than what is right now. To know that the story, that the evil that rages, it rages really loud and it doesn't matter because God will always be louder. Amen. Amen. At this time, friends, I'd like to invite you